You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, if we have not met before, uh, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. And let me just welcome you and say it's great to have you with us. Numbers of you are new, been having a lot of new folks coming this uh, as we enter into the fall season. So uh, welcome. It's just wonderful that you would join us, and we pray you'll feel right at home. And if we can do anything for you, answer any questions for you, uh, please let us know. If you're watching online, same thing. Uh, we welcome you, uh, both new folks and those who've been around as well. Well, uh, we've started a series last week, so you've only missed one week of this. If you're new here, we're just beginning a series working our way through the book of 1 Peter called Thriving on the Margins, God's Purpose for His Church in an Increasingly Hostile World. And last week, we just studied the first couple of verses, and we saw that Peter is writing to a group of churches that's in modern-day Turkey. It would have been known as Asia Minor at the time. And these folks are experiencing resistance for their faith. It's not the height of persecution in the first century, uh, but they are facing various trials, is what he calls them, fiery ordeals, sufferings of different kinds related to their faith in Jesus. So they are facing rejection. They are facing sort of a social or cultural ostracism. Um, and in that, in that place where they are experiencing pushback in various areas of their lives, he calls them to understand their identity. And he says, look, you are elect exiles. You are exiles, first of all, that is, you are foreigners in your own culture. They weren't from another place. But he said, in your culture, it's like you're a, a foreigner, an outsider, an, an exile, In your own culture, you're living on the margins because you identify with Jesus. And so we made uh, comments last week about how increasingly that's the situation in our own culture, uh, the the one we live in today. And, And he says to them, not only are you outsiders, though, importantly, you are chosen. You're chosen by the Father. So there's this encouragement that you're the people of God, chosen by the Father. Elsewhere in Scripture, it would say, before the foundation of the world. And so now you are to live as an elect exile, one who perhaps is a foreigner even in his or her own home, and yet you are chosen by God. And so much of this book is going to talk to us about how to walk through sort of living on the margins in a culture. Now, When he says in the book, various times, various trials, I think it's appropriate to take the things we're learning and apply them to other trials as well. It's not just, there may be a primary context in which they receive this letter, a primary context that he's pastoring them and helping them, uh, that being one of um, being marginalized for their faith, but certainly Other trials apply as well, and today we're going to see really how to navigate difficult days in our culture or in your individual life. So we're going to read together. Uh, We're going to cover verses 3 through 12, but these are dense. First couple of verses are dense. 
in their content. So we're going to look at almost every word of the passage. And so I'm going to move a little bit more slowly. So I'm going to look at verses 3 through 5, then we'll go 6 through 9, and then 10 through 12. But first of all, verses 3 through 5, let's listen together to the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So he's going to say three things to them, I believe, in this passage about how to navigate difficult days. And the first thing he's going to say that he says in this passage is praise God for your new birth. Now most, most of us would not have thought that's where he would start. Uh, most of us would not expect that that's where you start, but that's exactly what he does. Verses 3 through 12 are one very long sentence, and they're all tied back. Uh, in the original language, they're one sentence. And they're all tied back to this first word, blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of your Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the New Testament, when the word blessed is used, speaking of God, it means to speak well of him. It's, the Greek word is the same word we get our word eulogy from, good words. It means to speak good words about God or to praise God. The NIV translates this, for instance, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing he says after his introduction to these suffering Christians is the point he makes is to direct their attention to what God has done for them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. The first place he does is direct their attention upward to God, in praise to God for what God has done for them. Now that's a word for us all. Whatever you bring in here today, whatever burden you bring in here today, I believe the Lord would call you to look to him and to give praise to him for what he has already done for us. It sounds very simple, something very simple addressing people who are living in complex trials, in a complex time, and, and just saying praise the Lord for what he has done, specifically here, your new birth. It, it, can, it can even sound trite. It can even sound insensitive to someone suffering. We want to be careful when we, you know, address people who are suffering. But this is the Word of God, and this is how God addresses this group of suffering people. And, and, and the reason he does that is because in the midst of trials, one thing we all need is a different perspective. We're living with a perspective we can just see what's in front of us, and we can just see horizontally the playing field of our lives and planet Earth, and we can't really see what's above, what God is doing how God is acting, what God is orchestrating, what he is up to. For, for to be sure, he is up to a million things that you do not know and you do not see. And so he wants to get our gaze upward 
And not only upward, but upward reminded of what God has done for us. Look what God has done for us. Blessed be God. Why? Praise to the Lord. Why? Because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. The Father has caused us to experience a new birth in Jesus Christ. When suffering, it's helpful to be reminded that the greatest spiritual event in your life, not just spiritual, as a believer, the greatest event in your life happened to you. You did not cause it. God caused you to be born again. I love that the the phrase is born again because birth is, is such a telling description of what happened to you when you came into the kingdom, when you believed in Jesus and received new life. Birth birth is a passive description. God caused something to happen to you. Think about your own birth. What did you contribute? A lot of pain to your mama. That's what you contributed. And some of you, for many years thereafter, Some of you to this very day. So get that right, okay? But it's a telling description. You didn't give yourself birth. Nobody congratulates you on your birthday. Hey, you know what? I want to say happy birthday, but I'm saying congratulations. You did a great job on being born. Nobody says that. They may congratulate your mom, but they don't congratulate you because you don't give yourself birth. Birth is something that happens to you, and that's why he says, praise God, because God has done this amazing thing to you. He has granted you new life to a living hope according to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And why did he do that? Well, it says in verse 3, according to his great mercy, because God is merciful on you. We can minimize the new birth. If you had a radical new birth, well, we all had a radical new birth, but if you experienced it in a way that sort of existentially it was radical for you and everything looked new to you, in other words, if you had one of those life sort of shaking experiences when you became a Christian, it's, it's, it's so easy a few years or many years afterwards to just tuck that way back in the past and not live in the reality of what really happened, how all-encompassing that was that you moved from death to life, from darkness to light, from enemy to friend of God by a new birth. Karen Jobes, in her commentary on 1 Peter, writes the following. She says, It is difficult to imagine a more sweeping concept than a new birth. Just as people receive their ethnic identity, their citizenship, their socioeconomic class, and their innate potentialities from their biological parents, Christians have a new identity and a new citizenship that redefines their relationship with society and transforms their identity and character. He wants them to know that you're on the margins because you've had a new birth, you're part of a new family, the Father's family, and he has given you a new identity and a new character. He is living inside of you. No work in your life is more profound, no miracle is greater or will ever exceed your new birth. Nothing is greater in your life than your new birth in Jesus Christ. And he points out here that your new birth 
it leads you into two things at least. And he wants them to remember this in their suffering. Your new birth leads you into two things. First, into a living hope. Verse 3, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, he's saying, you don't have a dead hope. Materialism, dead hope. If you're hoping in your appearance or your health, dead hope. You're getting older and you're dying. That's the reality. If, you're, if, you're, if your hope is your identity in your work, guess what? You will come to some time in your life where you will no longer be able to do that work and it will be over. Those are dead hopes. This, however, is a living hope because Jesus is alive. And so he is our hope. And Peter should know about that. I mean, everything changed for Peter at the resurrection, our author of this letter. All of Peter's hopes died on a cross. He believed that Jesus was the king who was going to overthrow the Roman oppressors. And yet, Jesus died on a cross, and Peter denied that he ever even knew him. But Jesus came back to life, revealed himself to Peter, forgave Peter, commissioned Peter to a living hope. And so Peter understands that the Christian life that, that he signed up for, that he's living out, that he will ultimately die for, it's not just embracing some ethical system. It's not just taking on some new moral values. It's a living hope in a living Savior who has conquered sin, death, and the grave. And so he's telling these dear folks who are suffering, look, everyone is mocking you, insulting you. Maybe you got fired from your job. Maybe your spouse left you because you became a Christian. So they have all these problems here. Maybe people have taken your possessions even from you. But think about what God has done for you. He's given you new life. And when he gave you new birth, you were born into a new family with a living hope. That this isn't optimism or just positive thinking. When the, when the Bible uses the word hope, especially in the New Testament, it's an assurance of a future certainty that is based on the work of Christ. So as Christ came alive from the dead, so will we. He will return and we will be resurrected to be with him forever. And Peter starts his letter with this sort of gritty hope Hope that you can sink your teeth into. Hope that will sustain you in difficulties. A living hope. Secondly, he says that new birth, verse 4, you were born uh, again to an inheritance. We're born into a new family, and with a new family, we get a new inheritance. No matter what happens in life, he says, your inheritance in Christ is is protected. And he uses these descriptors that are just really amazing. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You have an inheritance that is imperishable. Imperishable, it means obviously it can't perish. Your hope won't wear out. Your hope won't decay. It won't die with the passage of time. All temporal things are subject to decay or to death, but not our inheritance in Jesus, our eternal inheritance of life the way it was meant to be in a new heaven and new earth when he comes for us. So he's saying it's imperishable. It is, we could say, death-proof. It cannot die. 
It's undefiled. Your inheritance has no taint of sin. It is, the, the, the pollution of sin is completely gone in heaven. And so it is, there's nothing impure in your inheritance. It is absolutely pure. It is sin-proof. It is death-proof. It is sin-proof. And he says it is unfading. It never dims. It never loses its beauty, never loses its glory. Everything we know dims and fades in life. But this is the one inheritance that is eternal. It is time-proof, death-proof, sin-proof, time-proof. And this glorious inheritance is kept and protected in heaven for you. I love that. It's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, verse 4, kept in heaven for you. God is keeping it. It cannot be taken away. Everything in our lives is uncertain. You pick the most certain thing in your life, and sooner or later you will find it is uncertain. Everything is uncertain in our lives. The outcome of our trials is uncertain. Our financial outcomes, uncertain. Job, uncertain. Health, uncertain. Relationships, all ultimately uncertain. But what is certain is that we can look ahead with confidence in a great inheritance, in a new heaven and a new earth that awaits us. And it's completely certain because verse 4 says it's kept for us by God. This is what God gives to suffering people. The promise of a future, the vision of a glorious inheritance. You always find this, that in the Bible, to suffering people, God lifts our eyes upward to him and to the future, to what's coming. The book of Revelation, which in the first place is written to seven churches. It has relevance to us, but it wasn't written directly to us. It was written to seven churches. So it's about them and their world that's going on, just like this is. And so what does the book of Revelation give to people that are suffering? It gives the hope that Jesus is the conqueror, that Jesus wins, and the assurance of the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem at the end of the uh, apocalypse, the vision. So God always gives a vision for the future in the middle of our difficulties to compel us forward because looking to eternity empowers us to persevere through difficulty. Looking to eternity empowers us to live through difficulty. There's a story of a, of a swimmer that I've heard before that I think is, is helpful. It says in 1952, a young woman named Florence Chadwick stepped off the beach at Catalina Island and into the water determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. Now, that's a long way. I've been on that, that boat ride from there. I may have thrown up on that boat. I got motion sick on that boat for sure. So anyway, I got very motion sick. I have this memory. Well, that's another story another time. But from mainland California to uh, Catalina Island. She was already an experienced long-distance swimmer. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy. The weather was foggy and chilly on the day she set out. She could scarcely see the boats that accompanied her. For 15 hours, she swam. She begged to be taken out, 
But her trainer urged persistence, telling her again and again that she could make it, that the shore was not far away. Physically and emotionally exhausted, she just stopped swimming and she was pulled out. The boats made for the shore and she discovered it was a mere half mile away. The next day she gave a news conference and what she said in effect was, I do not want to make excuses for myself. I'm the one who asked to be pulled out. But I think that if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. If I could see the shore, I would have made it. A vision for our destination empowers us in difficult days. And Peter wants these young believers to see the shore. He wants to see the finish line. He wants to see them to see what they are moving toward. For if they can glimpse this eternal, imperishable, unfading inheritance, Jesus himself, if they could see that, it empowers them to keep going. He says, think about your inheritance. It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it's not just a vision of the destination, but it's also an assurance that we are kept by God. He wants them to know that God keeps them. They're not working to to keep it, but that he is keeping you. It's an inheritance that's guarded, but so are the heirs as well. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So he's saying not only does he keep your inheritance, but he's keeping you. He's keeping you through faith as you trust him. He is keeping you for for the salvation that will be revealed in the last day. You will be, salvation essentially means rescue. You will be rescued. You will be delivered in the last day. You will be delivered from all sin, all sorrow, all sickness, all suffering. You will be delivered from all of that. And the greatest truth of all is you will be delivered from the judgment, the condemning judgment of God in the last day. That's what's in front of you. Dear people of Asia Minor and dear people of Frisco and surrounding communities, that God holds us till the end, guards us for a salvation, a great rescue to be revealed in the last time. So God guards us. We are to continue in faith. We can speak both of God's preservation and of our perseverance. They are both in the scripture, God's preservation, our perseverance, but the accent is clearly on God's preservation that he holds us until the end. Praise God for your new birth, he says, because you have this living hope. You were born again to a living hope and to an inheritance. Number two, he says something that is so counterintuitive. Rejoice in your trials. Verse six, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, 
the salvation of your souls. So after drawing them to what God has done for them and what he's prepared for them, he then calls them to rejoice in their trials. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though you have been grieved by various trials. Now again, this can certainly sound trite as well. I mean, in the, in the Christian world, we, we can be flippant about rejoicing in your trials. Sometimes we don't really talk honestly about our suffering and our griefs and the pains of our lives. And, and so there is a place absolutely to acknowledge the burdens of this life and to be real about them. So to rejoice about them is not to deny them. He never denies their suffering in this letter. It's not to minimize them. But it is to put them in perspective. It is to put them in God's perspective. We see the same idea rejoicing in trials elsewhere in James 1. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials is what James says. And he gives us a few reasons that we can rejoice. Now, this is God's perspective, a very different perspective than we normally have. We don't allow our trials to define us, nor do we ignore them. Rather, we acknowledge the reality of them, and then we take God's perspective to rejoice even in our difficulties. First of all, he says we can rejoice because trials are temporary. Trials are temporary. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials. He's been talking about their eternal inheritance. He wants them to have an eternal perspective. He wants them to see what God has for them, protecting, guarding them. And in, in light of eternity, their suffering is only for a little while. I mean, we can all look back at a time in our lives where something was very difficult. And you look back on it now and it it, it, it seemed at the time it would never end. Like, I'll never get out of this. This is, this is who I am forever. And, and, and now you can look back at that situation, and it, there's no sting to it. Maybe there's some grief, but there's no real sting like what it felt like at the time. You lost a job, or you moved and thought that was just going to be the end of the world, or you had a health scare, maybe even walked through a health situation, but you got surgery, you had a surgery, and you have a clean bill of health, and what seemed monumental, everybody is praying, can I make it through this? It defined your existence for a while, but now you look back on it and go, it was just a little while. Now, if we can have that perspective in our own temporal lives, how much more compared to all eternity? Is this just a little while? In a moment, you will be with Jesus. In a moment on an eternal scale. That's the reality. Life is moving quickly uh, towards his return or our death, whichever comes first. We can all look back on something that seems so defining. And yet, if we look ahead, it gives us faith to realize this is temporary and there's something good on the other side. That's, that's the very attitude of Jesus when he goes to the cross. Hebrews 12 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus himself went through the greatest suffering imaginable because of the joy that was on the other side. 
Secondly, it says that trials strengthen our faith. We all want strong faith. We all want mature faith. We all want unshakable faith when difficulties come. And the only way we get, we'll never have unshakable faith until we see him face to face, but the only way we get to a, a, a less shakable faith is through trials. That's the reality. Verse 7 says, so that the tested rejoice, in this you rejoice, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Tested faith, he says, is more precious than gold. More precious than gold. Now, in a, as marginalized believers in the first century, they're probably thinking, I would take gold. I need something to sustain me in these difficulties. And he's saying, what will sustain you in difficulties that's more precious than gold is faith, a tried and tested faith. And he says when it's tested, when it goes through fire, it is tested by fire. Gold in the, is, is put to the fire so that the impurities are burned out. So the way you get pure gold is to burn out all the impurities that are in there. But even there, genuine faith is more valuable because gold will come to an end. Gold is not eternal. It is not eternal, whereas faith in Christ is. Gold doesn't last. Gold doesn't grasp on to the eternal inheritance. Our faith is tested and by the fires of trials, he actually calls them fiery trials, and it is proven genuine. Listen, we all wish there was another way. We all wish there was an easier way. Could we just come down and have a prayer time? We're going to lay hands on you, and you will have a tested, mature faith that will not, uh, you know, that, that will not uh, shake at all, but will stand the test time. I wish we could do that. I wish you could take a pill. I wish they could just pray a magic prayer. I wish there was something. But God's plan is your faith is tested by fire. But it's tested by the trials, and it purifies and strengthens your faith. The resistance gives you strength. Like resistance training. The resistance builds your strength. The resistance builds your endurance. It is a trial and not a triumph that leads us to trust in Christ. The reason it builds our strength is because we have to use our faith in times of difficulty. We have to cry out to a God that we don't think is there. We have to cry out to a God, again, that doesn't appear to be hearing or answering anything we're asking him to do. How long, O oh Lord? When you pray the prayer of the psalmist, how long, O oh Lord? And yet you consistently look to Jesus day in and day out as your only hope, the only place you can go in your trial. That builds your faith. I wish sitting on the beach with a cool beverage and the Bible open on my lap could change my... That's the way I would like it to go. Ease and comfort your way to a strong faith. <laughs> but the Bible is just, it doesn't work that way. Our trials call us to look to God. And you'll find that people who have the strongest faith are those who have experienced the most resistance, 
the most difficulty, the greatest trials, and have pressed through. We do pray for God to turn situations around. We pray for God to heal the sick instantly, to heal the sick. We ask for that. But I've often found that the, great, the greatest work of God is not in an instantaneous change of circumstance, an instantaneous job offer, an instantaneous healing, an instantaneous reconciliation. Sometimes it doesn't go that way, and you have to press on and, and, and trust God over a period of time and wait. And it's those who go through that that oftentimes have the greatest faith. It's the person that's not healed but continues to trust Jesus in the midst of their suffering, that you find, boy, that is faith like gold, more valuable than gold. I love what Ed Clowney says about this in his, in his commentary on 1 Peter. He has this simple phrase, look at this, our trials keep us trusting, they burn away our self-confidence and drive us to our Savior. Just as the fire burns away their impurities and gold, so our, so, so our, uh, our trials burn away our self-confidence. The last thing he says about this is that our trials bring us to Christ. Our tested faith, he says, may, be the res- may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, is what he says. It is tested by fire, and it may be found to bring praise and glory and honor at the revelation. The revelation of Jesus is speaking here of his return. His, his revelation, his return... It's sufferings now, but glories to follow. Today's sufferings, which are temporary, are preparing us for coming glory, coming honor, coming praise to Jesus who sustained us through all of our trials. There'll be a day where we see him face to face and in great praise and glory and honor, thank him for sustaining us and seeing us all the way home. 2 Corinthians says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When we think of what he's done, when we think of what he's doing and what he will do, it's to stir our hearts for him. That's why he says that though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. These people likely became Christians and thought, wow, life is going to radically change. Well, it did. And it didn't change circumstantially, perhaps, for their better. Their relationships changed as people resisted their crazy beliefs out of the norm, resisted their new ethics, resisted their new morality. And and so the reality is uh, they are continuing to trust the God they cannot see. And it is producing a joy that is inexpressible. That's what it says Though you do not see him, verse 8, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. There's no words for the kind of joy the Lord wants to produce in the suffering person's life as they embrace his perspective of suffering. Praise God for your new birth. Rejoice in your trials. And finally, realize your privilege. Verses 10 through 12. Let's look at this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that you have been that has now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. He says to them in the midst of their suffering, all of these taken in isolation could sound insensitive. I get that. You don't just a suffering person say, hey, you think about how blessed you are. Think about your privilege. I get that. Now, privilege I get is a buzzword culturally right now, but I can't think of any better word for, to describe what he says to them here. He says, you are privileged. You, you have the living hope of Jesus because of the time you live in. You live after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And do you know that the prophets longed for this? They described it. They prayed and dreamed about the coming Messiah. They reported what God told them. And you know why they did all that, it says in uh, verse 12? They did it for you. It was the gospel that came to you so that you could experience what they never experienced. Do you know what he's saying to them? You have chronological privilege. Have you ever thought about that? You have chronological privilege. The prophets never had what you have. And then he makes this astounding statement. Oh, the angels long to look, at your, look into your experience. The angels who are with God don't know the redemption you have experienced. Don't know death to life, forgiveness of sins, redemption. They don't even know what you experience, and they long to look into it. To suffering people who are struggling, he is saying to them, you live in a time that has afforded you a salvation experience, a new birth, a a revelation of Jesus Christ. You know him. You don't see him, but you know him is what he says. And this is a privileged place to be. I've often read the Old Testament and thought, wow, I'm so glad I was born when I was born. We think about that about other things. Whoa, this summer, you know, so hot. I can't imagine living without air conditioning. How did people do it before? You know, we do that all the time. But do we do that on the, on the plan of redemption? And say, you know what? I am so glad I live not looking forward to a Messiah that we really don't fully see. And we've got glimpses and pictures and we're just following this killing of animals and sacrifice just in hope that God will one day do what he says. But we live looking back and saying, the tomb is empty. And the Spirit of God lives in us in a way that they never experienced in the Old Testament. So he's saying, just step back a minute and saying, yeah, you're being resisted, but oh, what a time to live. I don't hear very many evangelicals in our culture saying that today. Oh, what a time to live. Because we think, well, what's happened since 2020? Or what's happened in the last 20 years? Or what's happened? Whoa, it's since I was a kid. He's saying, think about eternity past to eternity future, and on that scale in the center of it is Jesus Christ coming and bringing the kingdom of God, and you live after that day in the kingdom. Now, it's hard to say, okay, that makes me feel better about all that's going on, but it should. 
It should. That's what the Lord offers. Praise God for your birth. Rejoice in your trials. Realize your chronological privilege, we'll call it. Where you land in the history of redemption, what a blessing. Juan Sanchez, we have his commentary uh, for you. This is the one we've been recommending. He says the following, no matter how hard life may get, or how oppressive governing officials may be, or how discriminatory a supervisor at work may become, you're privileged to be alive today because you get to live in a time when Christ has been revealed and we have experienced his salvation. Let us take comfort in knowing that no matter what we may lose in this life and however we may suffer because of our faith in Christ, we're more privileged than either prophets or angels. At one point he says, Isaiah would have gladly traded places with you and lived in this day. Why can we rejoice? Why can we praise God? Why can we thank God for the time we live? Well, we go back to verse 3. It's all because of his mercy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his mercy. He wants them to see all of this is the mercy of God. God reaching down to weak people with encouragement and strength. God reaching down to confused people with clarity of truth. God reaching down to people who don't know if they can go on any longer and giving them a vision of the finish line. If you can just see the shore by the Spirit of God, you can continue on. Look at the shore. Look at the inheritance kept forever for you. That's the mercy of God. Now, we would say, okay, you're elect exiles, so just come in and fix it, God. Instantly make everybody be a Christian. Just This is great. That's not what he does calls them to look to him and to see a much grander purpose, and that is his mercy. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.